You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 165, The Battle of Bemis Heights. A few weeks ago, we left General Horatio Gates at the head of an army comprised of Continentals and militia, poised to block the advance of General Johnny Burgoyne and his army of British and German Brunswickers. The two armies had fought at what became known as the Battle of Freeman's Farm, without any real change in the two armies' positions. Since then, both armies, well, remained in position, neither ready to advance on the other. Gates sat behind his entrenchments at Bemis Heights, waiting for the British to get desperate enough to attack his strong defensive position. With each day that passed, the Continental Army grew stronger while the British grew weaker. By early October, Gates had over 10,000 Continentals and militia under his direct command. Burgoyne's army had dwindled down to around 5,000 effectives. He was cut off from food and supplies from the north and could not venture out to forage in the area. Not that there was much left to forage, even if they could go out. The British Army had been on reduced rations, meaning the men were not getting enough to eat. By day, Continental riflemen picked off British pickets from a distance. At night, Patriots snuck up on the pickets and killed them with knives or tomahawks. Among the British ranks, suicides and desertions grew. Conditions were that miserable and prospects that bleak. For many officers and men, more than their own lives were at stake. Many of them had their families with them. These dependents were on the same starvation-level rations as the army and faced an unknown fate if they fell into the hands of the enemy. The German commander, Friedrich von Redesel, had his wife and daughters with him. He had attempted to send his family back to Canada, but his wife refused to abandon him. For reasons beyond the safety of his family, General Redesel had been pushing Burgoyne to pull back the army to Fort Edward. From there, they would be able to re-establish supply lines to Ticonderoga and would have a better line of retreat. Burgoyne dismissed such recommendations. He was still focused on getting to Albany. He had sent messages to General Clinton in New York, encouraging Clinton to send an army up the Hudson to meet Burgoyne in Albany. Retreating was out of the question. Even so, Burgoyne knew his position was becoming more desperate each day. In addition to Burgoyne facing an army nearly twice his size, New York Militia General Jacob Bailey now led an additional 200 soldiers north of Fort Edward, making that route of retreat much less of a possibility. As I mentioned last week, Burgoyne wrote a series of letters to General Henry Clinton. Most had an optimistic tone, 
which Burgoyne explained later as not wanting to put into writing how really desperate his situation had become. Burgoyne had learned only recently that General Howe had abandoned him by taking his army south to capture Philadelphia and with no intention of moving north again that year. Now, Burgoyne had learned of the move on Philadelphia long enough before that that he could have retreated back to Ticonderoga and ended the season there. That was what many of his generals had recommended. Burgoyne, though, had gone to London the year before and gotten this command by telling the political leadership that the generals in America were too timid and not aggressive enough in pushing forward. He had promised to open up a corridor from Canada to New York City that year. Anything less would be seen as a failure. Perhaps a withdrawal would have been a sensible act of caution, but that is exactly what he had criticized his superiors of doing in order to get the command ahead of more senior generals. Burgoyne, at heart, was a gambler. He knew that he had to take some real risks, not only to win the war, but also to justify his rise in rank past other leaders. Although he didn't use the term, Burgoyne was showing the same victory-or-death attitude that had served the Americans quite well in prior battles. Turning back for Burgoyne was not a serious consideration. Although General Howe had abandoned him, Burgoyne still hoped that General Henry Clinton could salvage the campaign. Although Clinton complained that he did not have enough men even to defend his command around New York City, Burgoyne hitched all of his hopes on Clinton sending a force up the Hudson River to Albany. If he could just reach that town, his army would be saved. Clinton had sent a message which Burgoyne received on September 21st. Clinton had sent the message 10 days earlier, saying that 10 days later he would begin a diversionary attack up the Hudson River with 2,000 men to attack Fort Montgomery, and that he hoped that it might divert some of the American forces away from Burgoyne. Now, General Clinton never indicated that he would go all the way to Albany. And even if he did, Clinton's 2,000-man force with Burgoyne's army of five or maybe 6,000 effectives, would still be outnumbered by the enemy, probably by two to one. Even if Clinton delivered more than he promised in his note by taking Albany, that would not necessarily spell victory for the British. Burgoyne still placed all of his hopes on joining up with Clinton at Albany and ultimately reaching New York City even though that looked increasingly unrealistic to just about everyone else. Some have argued that Burgoyne's letters to Clinton at this point indicated that Burgoyne knew that failure was the probable end of his campaign and that he wanted someone else to take the blame. On September 27th, Burgoyne sent a message to tell General Clinton that he needed assurance that Clinton could take Albany before he could push through. Otherwise, if Clinton failed, Burgoyne would be forced to retreat. The next day, after writing that, Burgoyne learned about John Brown's raid that had captured Skeensboro and also received an inaccurate report that the Americans had captured Fort George. This caused Burgoyne to dash off another desperate note to Clinton, saying that he would not have given up his communications with Ticonderoga if he had not expected to meet up with British forces in Albany, 
Clinton sent reply messages to make clear that he was not going to Albany. The Americans intercepted those messages, so they never reached Burgoyne anyway. On October 4th and 5th, 1777, Burgoyne held councils of war with Generals Redazel, Phillips, and Fraser. They agreed that they needed to do something soon. The army would launch an attack against the American defenses. Their hope was to punch a hole in the lines and march through to Albany. Burgoyne originally proposed that he would deploy virtually his entire army against the American left, leaving only a few hundred men to guard the baggage near the river. The other generals thought this was insanity. Since the Americans could easily capture their baggage with a quick raid, leaving the army in the field with absolutely no supplies or equipment. Generals Rudazel and Fraser still recommended the army retreat back to Fort Edward. Burgoyne, however, refused to consider that option. Instead, the generals agreed on the plan to attack the American left flank. If they could roll up the Americans there, they could take the heights and threaten to push the rest of the Continental Army back against the Hudson River. The British could then push more soldiers into the battle as needed over the course of the day, while still protecting their baggage. It was still a pretty desperate gamble, but really the best option they had aside from retreat or surrender. The American leadership, though, seemed to be doing everything it could to undermine its own very strong position. Specifically, the fight between General Horatio Gates and General Benedict Arnold grew into an all-out squall. Gates had left Arnold pretty much on his own on the left flank during the Battle of Freeman's Farm a few weeks earlier. By failing to send sufficient reinforcements that day, Gates seemed to be trying to set up Arnold for failure. When the Americans under Arnold held their own under the British assault, it appeared that Arnold would be credited with a great victory. In the middle of that battle, Arnold had to return to headquarters to beg Gates personally to send in more reinforcements. After that, Gates refused to let Arnold return to the battlefield and lead the final victory. By all appearances, Gates seemed more willing to lose the battle than to give Arnold credit for a victory. When Gates reported the victory to Congress and to the governor of New York, he did not even mention Arnold. Gates merely stated that a division of the army had stopped the British advance. He named several field officers, but failed to mention Arnold's leadership at all. Several days after the battle at Freeman's Farm, Colonel Wilkinson, who was Gates's aide, removed Morgan's riflemen from Arnold's command and moved them to his own command without giving Arnold any notice. It was hard for anyone to see the military value to this change. In fact, removing the riflemen from the flanks where they had been so critical at Freeman's farm seemed the height of military stupidity. Further, the lack of any notice was a deliberate act of disrespect designed to provoke Arnold. Arnold had issued daily orders to Morgan's men only to find them countermanded by Wilkinson's orders. It made Arnold look like a fool who did not know what was happening in the chain of command. As anticipated, Arnold took the orders as a direct insult against him, and one putting the whole army at risk in an attempt to win some petty political game. 
he charged into Gates's headquarters for a direct confrontation. There, the two generals got into a screaming match. Gates said he was not even sure Arnold was still a general, since he had submitted his resignation to Congress weeks earlier, shortly before traveling up to Saratoga. He informed Arnold that he was relieved of command and that General Lincoln would take his place. He further suggested that if Arnold didn't like it, he should go back to Philadelphia and take up the issue with Congress. Arnold stalked out, but then sent a written note asking Gates to explain the reasons for his treatment. Instead, Gates simply sent a note to Arnold giving him leave to return to Philadelphia and saying he would no longer speak with Arnold either in person or in writing. According to oral history or legend or whatever you want to call it, every officer of the line except General Lincoln signed a written request to Arnold not to abandon the army at this time. Um, If there was such a document, it's unfortunately been lost to history. But it seems clear that even officers who knew how prickly Arnold could be did not want to lose their best combat commander on the eve of this battle. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, Gates's disfavor of Arnold seemed to stem from Arnold's decision to take two young officers, Richard Varick and Henry Livingston, onto his staff. The two officers had been General Philip Schuyler's staff members before he had lost his command. Gates saw Arnold's decision to give staff positions to these two young officers of his arch-rival as a direct attack against him. After hearing from all the officers who wanted Arnold to remain, Gates sent out a feeler via an aide to see if Arnold would be willing to dismiss the two men as an olive branch to repair relations between them. Arnold absolutely refused to dismiss the two officers. They had done nothing wrong, and he wasn't going to use them in order to assuage the commander's feelings. Although Varick and Livingston soon left on their own, the two generals seemed unwilling to repair their relationship for the good of the war effort. Arnold remained in camp, but Gates refused to include him in any staff meetings of top officers. Arnold continued to write letters to Gates, recommending various actions, but Gates simply ignored them. On October 1st, Gates formally stripped Arnold of command and personally took over the left wing of the army, giving General Lincoln command of the right wing. Despite having stronger numbers and a good position, the Continental Army's leadership seemed hopelessly divided. Gates seemed determined to destroy Arnold even if it meant losing the battle. On the morning of October 7th, General Burgoyne personally led a division of over 2,000 regulars, along with General Frazier, against the American left flank. His goal was to see if they could find a weakness in the American lines. The light infantry, grenadiers, and even some select German troops backed by 10 field cannon left camp shortly after 10 a.m., advancing to Barber's Wheatfield. From there, they could observe the American positions. Facing the British in the woods on the other side of the field were Morgan's riflemen, along with Generals Enoch Poor and Ebenezer Learned's brigades, more than 2,000 Continentals, with perhaps another 1,500 militia. For most of the morning, the two armies just eyed each other and vied for position. Then, around 2 p.m., 
the British opened fire against Poor's brigade. The distance was too far for the firing to be effective, and the Americans held their ground. Finally, the British charged across the field with bayonets, but were cut down by Americans at close range. British Major Ackland, who led the British charge, was shot in both legs and taken prisoner. General Poor's Continentals countercharged and captured the British cannon on the other side of the field. Morgan's riflemen engaged with Fraser's regulars, keeping the British pinned down with deadly accurate rifle fire. Burgoyne sent orders for the men to withdraw, but Morgan's riflemen shot the messenger before he could get to Fraser. Not aware of the orders, Fraser remained on the field taking heavy casualties. As the battle raged, General Gates was nowhere close to the battle. Although he had made himself division commander there, he remained at his headquarters about two miles away from the soldiers in the field. Arnold, confined to his tent, fumed as he heard the distant sound of gunfire. For several hours, the Americans, primarily General Enoch Poor's brigade and Morgan's riflemen, held the enemy at bay. Gates dispatched written orders based on reports that he was receiving from the battlefield. Finally, after he could take it no longer, Arnold mounted his horse and rode toward the sound of the gunfire. He found Colonel Morgan, but simply rode past him toward the enemy. On the front lines, Arnold rallied the retreating men and reorganized them for another charge. Morgan's riflemen soon caught up with Arnold and provided him with support as the British line reeled from the unexpected American charge. On the other side of the lines, General Simon Fraser attempted to rally his British, riding up and down encouraging the men. Arnold saw Fraser's effective leadership. He did not know it was Fraser, but he turned to Morgan and told him that that officer needed to be taken out. Morgan assigned the job to one of his best sharpshooters, and minutes later, Fraser fell off his horse, fatally wounded with a shot in the stomach. Men who saw Arnold in the field that day described him as a madman, perhaps even drunk. Although the charge of drunkenness seems to have been made by his detractors trying to disparage his role that day, Arnold did ride back and forth, shouting to them and encouraging them, regularly exposing himself to enemy fire, as if he preferred to die in battle rather than to return to his tent as ordered. He rode his horse across the entire British line of battle, drawing numerous shots but never being hit. Finally, Arnold rallied a regiment to charge the British redoubt, leading the charge himself. The defenders fired at him, finally at least taking down his horse, which collapsed. Arnold jumped free from the falling animal and stood up, only to have a wounded enemy soldier shoot him at near point-blank range, hitting Arnold in the leg. When the soldiers with Arnold moved to bayonet his attacker, Arnold said, Don't hurt him. He's a fine fellow. He only did his duty. It was the last great charge of the day, and it allowed the Americans to hold the field. The Germans made one more futile attempt to retake the redoubt, but they were easily driven back. The British pulled back to a defensive position near the Hudson River, badly bloodied that day. As Arnold was carried from the field, Gates's aide finally caught up with him with orders that he should return to camp immediately.
Between the two battles, Freeman's Farm and Bemis Heights, which were fought within a few weeks of each other and generally over the same area of land, the British had taken over a thousand casualties, over 400 killed and nearly 700 wounded. Several hundred more were taken prisoner. With his dwindling force running out of food and supplies, General Burgoyne pulled back to a defensive area along the Hudson River. Another attack was, well, out of the question, and even the prospect of a retreat seemed unlikely following this battle. The death of General Simon Fraser was an especially difficult blow to the British leadership. Fraser died of his wounds early in the morning the day after the battle while in the care of the Baroness von Redazel. He was buried along with Burgoyne's aide-de-camp, Francis Clerk, who had fallen victim to Morgan's rifles while delivering messages to field commanders. The two officers' graves went unmarked to prevent the enemy from finding them. The Americans had lost far fewer casualties, less than 350 killed and wounded between both battles. More militia reinforcements were arriving each day and continued to swell the American ranks. General Arnold was the most conspicuous injury of the day. One of Gates's aides approached Arnold as stretcher-bearers carried him back from the battlefield. He asked, where are you hit? Arnold responded, in the same leg, meaning the same leg that had been shot at the Battle of Quebec a couple of years earlier. Arnold then added, I wish it had been my heart. Arnold's work that day, in defiance of General Gates's orders, had been critical to the American victory. Now, the British had no more real options to fight. Burgoyne's last hope was that a relief force under General Henry Clinton might reach them from New York City. His army hung on, refusing to surrender, with hope of a relief column to save his army. We'll see how that goes next week when we cover the surrender at Saratoga. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi! Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks, as always, to Trey Nance and George Davis for their support of the podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Now, hopefully, most of you noticed last week I released a special midweek episode where I talked with Dr. Ronald Gibbs about medical practice during the American Revolution. 
Over the years, I've tried to add elements to my podcast without diminishing or altering the basic format that started at the beginning of the show, a 20-minute discussion that continues the ongoing story of the American Revolution. Now, I've added things over the years, like the after-show, book reviews, online reviews, etc. I've never had a guest before, mostly because I was concerned about the lower audio quality and because having guests really didn't fit in with the format of my regular shows. I finally reached the point where I felt I could do an interview in addition to the weekly shows. I certainly can't keep up that pace every week. However, I am going to try to include one special midweek interview as a special episode, hopefully at least once a month. It's just a bonus in addition to what I've been doing each week for several years now. I am curious if you like it or not. If you find the special episodes annoying or if they could be changed in some way, for example, maybe you think they should be shorter, like the irregular episodes or other criticisms, feel free to let me know. I'm also curious if there are any particular issues that you would like to see covered or a guest that you think I should interview. If you have any suggestions on those counts, let me know that as well. To that end, if you want to get in touch with me, I've started adding my email address, my Twitter handle, and my Facebook group address at the bottom of each blog episode. Feel free to reach out to me and tell me what you think. My blog, of course, can be found at blog.amrevpodcast.com. So this week, I covered the Battle of Bemis Heights, sometimes called the Second Battle of Saratoga. As I've said about the Saratoga campaign, but feel I cannot stress enough, this really was a turning point in the war, not only because it convinced France to join the war, but because of the shock in London that a large professionally commanded army of regulars could be defeated by the amateur Continentals. If Burgoyne's army had been able to retreat back to Fort Ticonderoga and not been captured, it probably wouldn't have had nearly the same impact. The crazy thing for me is that even if Burgoyne's risky march through New York had been a success and he reached New York City, that really wouldn't have gained the British any more than if he had sat with his army in Canada or at Fort Ticonderoga. The strategists in London seemed to think they could march that army and then draw a line separating New England from the rest of the colonies, thus creating some stark division. But as the raids by Colonel John Brown and others show a couple of weeks ago, even territories that were supposedly captured by the British did not stay captured. The Americans would still be able to travel freely through the Mohawk Valley, and the British would never have adequately manned outposts to control that area that they had barely been able to march through. Small outposts simply would have become targets for future attacks. Burgoyne's attempted march to New York, if successful, probably wouldn't have been much different than Howe's capture of Philadelphia. It would have been something to cheer about, but the war would have simply continued. So the ministry was taking so much risk for a chance to gain almost nothing. For me, the real hero of this battle is Benedict Arnold. Many people do not appreciate just how critical he was to winning the war. I don't think anyone, except perhaps Washington himself, had as much impact on the war as Benedict Arnold. The fact that he had to do it with the resistance, 
and in some cases, outright opposition of his superiors makes it all the more impressive. I quoted Arnold at the end of my main show today as saying that he had been hit in the leg, but wished he had been hit in the heart, presumably meaning he wished he'd been killed in battle. I think many historians share that sentiment. If Arnold had died at the end of this battle, having secured the victory, he probably would have gone down in history as one of the greatest American military commanders of all time. Following the Battle of Saratoga, Arnold never really contributes much more to the cause. As I will cover in future episodes, the next years are all about scandal and eventually his outright treason. And I have to say, sometimes the word treason gets thrown around in modern politics as a means of describing political disloyalty or even just policy disagreements. For me, that just waters down the true meaning of the word. Someone who, out of self-interest, is willing to sacrifice the lives and well-being of their fellow countrymen. That is what Arnold did. And I don't mean to sugarcoat that despicable act by noting just how valuable and brave he was in his earlier years. That is hard for many people to reconcile, which is why his earlier contributions in the war go largely ignored. I've recommended several Arnold biographies already, but another good book is my book recommendation this week. It's called Valiant Ambition, George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution by Nathaniel Philbrick. This book is not a biography. Rather, it covers the revolution from the perspective of both General Washington and General Arnold. I think it did well in explaining just how important Arnold was to the early war, and how that made his betrayal near the end of the war even more stark to the men who counted on his continued loyal leadership. Phil Brick, the author, of course, is a best-selling author of many books involving the Revolution and other parts of American history. Hopefully you don't need me to tell you who he is. He's won a slew of awards and should be well-known to all. His book, Valiant Ambition, was published in 2016. It's over 300 pages, not counting another more than 100 pages of notes and index. And because it's so mass-marketed at the time of its release, it should be very easy to find a used copy today for very little cost. So, for more on Benedict Arnold's importance to the revolution, please read Valiant Ambition if you've not done so already. While I'm on the topic of books, I often get asked to recommend books for younger people who are looking for books to introduce them to the American Revolution. I wanted to mention a few fictional novels that are set in the American Revolution. Two by Robert Skeed are called Patriots, Redcoats, and Spies, which are set in events surrounding the Culper spy ring, and another called Submarines, Secrets, and a Daring Rescue, involving Bushnell's Turtle. These are both fictional novels where young boys get involved in an adventure set during the American Revolution, and I am told that the author is working on a third book in what is going to become a trilogy. There's two other books, if you're interested, by Chris Stevenson. They are The Drum of Destiny, where a young patriot orphan becomes involved in the Siege of Boston, and The Canon of Courage which continues the adventure with Henry Knox bringing cannons back from Ticonderoga. And I'm told that this author is also working on another book in the series. 
And if you want to learn more about any of these books, go to www.knoxpress.com. That's K-N-O-X, as in Henry Knox, press, so knoxpress.com, to learn more about these books. As I said, these books are geared toward primary and middle school kids. So if you know young people who want to get more interest in the American Revolution, you may want to check out these books. As I said, I have links on my blog and website where you can learn more about these books. I also recently watched a live online video from both of these authors talking about their books, and I've included a link to a recording of that video as well in case you want to learn more directly from the authors. Finally today, my online recommendation of the week is another great primary source in the form of an ebook. It's called The Memoirs of Major General Redazel, Volume 1, by Max von Elking and translated by William Stone. Major General Redazel, of course, was the German commander in the Saratoga Expedition. The English edition of this book came out in 1868. General von Redazel played really a key role in the Saratoga campaign, and it's great to have a source directly from the horse's mouth talking about the Saratoga campaign and his role in it. The ebook for this is available on archive.org, and as usual, I've included a direct link on both my website and blog. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you can join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.